would invite all of you to please turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians. We will begin in verse 19, and I know to, uh, to my brothers upstairs, I didn't give you uh, slides this morning, but we'll just be focusing on these verses uh, at, at, at different parts. And so as long as you can move back and forth between this passage, we'll be good to go. Uh, so you can find this passage in the Navy Blue Bibles in your pew on page 1160 if you choose to use those. And again, we're Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also being built together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. So last week in our text, uh, still in chapter 2, we uh, looked at how Jesus has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, thereby giving all of His children equal access to the Father. One of the greatest oddities of the world, uh, the modern world anyway, is our modern concept of identity, which we talked a lot about last Sunday, uh, the identity of Jew and the identity of Gentile. Now, both of these, uh, you who were near, that is the, the Jews, and you who were far off, that is the Gentiles, being brought in by the blood of Christ. Having started that conversation, if you like, about identity, I want to continue it this morning. Uh, helped in part by guys like Jean-Paul Sartre and the larger postmodern movement, I am convinced that we tend to think of identity and personhood as something that is mainly individually constructed. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Our, our modern conception of identity is something that is mainly, centrally, self-constructed, self-designed. Uh, that is, it is up to me to figure out and determine and both of these might be the same thing, but figure out and determine who I am and what to do with that information. So, I mean, just a, a brief, a, a little illustration of this, I would put it to you that if you watch any movie made after, say, oh, I don't know, let's just say uh, 1965, just to throw a dart at a dartboard. If you watch any movie made after that, if there is a character being told by their family uh, or some other authority, like this is your identity, this is what you are made for, you can pretty well guarantee that that's the bad guy or the voices that are going to be shown to be foolish by the end of the story. What's interesting is that for most of human history, most cultures in most places found identity, I mean, not, not apart or distinct from the individual, but, but mainly within the family and even within the nation. For modern people, most of the time, our identity is actually found when contrasted with family or nation. This was true of me and my story. I, uh, a lot of you might know I was raised in the uh, United Methodist Church, became over time more or less disillusioned, disillusioned with the liberalism I found there, although, I mean, a lot of my friends in those circles were, were fairly theologically conservative. But, but more and more disillusioned with the liberalism I found in the denomination writ large, and ended up enrolling at Liberty University, because that's how Methodist kids rebel, right? 
They go to fundamentalist Baptist universities, after all. It took a long while before God humbled me and worked in me a recognition of the inheritance and virtue within my own family line that, if you'll pardon me for putting it this way, because I know it sounds weird, that, that, that to take great joy in the blessing of being a Rhodes took me some time. And seeing that blessing was a key part of, I would just call it my growing up. Recognizing the inheritance of my family identity brought a great deal of relief from the burden of trying to totally reinvent an identity distinct from them. There is, I think, a similar kind of gift that awaits us and awaits our discovery. It's appropriate that on All Saints Day we would talk about the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us and the great inheritance, even inheritance of identity that we have after thousands of years of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Because Christian identity is not simply an individualistic faith conviction. Now follow me here. It's not less than that. It's just more. It is reception into a family. And I want to show you from our text this morning with three observations. First, that God has a house. Or if you like, perhaps a better term, is a household. Second, that this house has a foundation. Third, that this house is growing and growing together. So first, God has a house. If you'll look at verse 19. So then Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's the case he just finished making. Jews and Gentiles, dividing wall has come down. But you are fellow citizens, that's nation terminology, with the saints, and fellow members of the household of God. That's family terminology. So fellow citizens, you have nation terminology. Members of the household of God, that's family terminology. Paul tells the Ephesians they were at one point strangers and sojourners, strangers and aliens. Now think about that for a minute. He's writing to Ephesians in the city of Ephesus, calling them strangers and aliens. I mean, if anything, Paul is the stranger, right? You're the one writing to us. Paul, I grew up here. How am I a stranger and an alien? What he is saying is that strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise. You've been made a citizen, Paul says, and a family member. They are citizens and their family members. In fact, the word members there in the ESV translates members. It's the same word Paul uses in 1 Timothy 5.8 when he says that anyone who does not take care of the members of his own family household has abandoned the faith. And we're also not just members in the household, we're citizens. In fact, fellow citizens with the saints, Paul says, to be a Christian is to be part of a people. These people have a history. They have a storied past. This is part of the reason we pause today to celebrate All Saints Sunday. Your Christianity is not simply your own private personal relationship with Jesus and the accompanying set of individualistic convictions. It's not less than that. It's just a lot more than that. To be a Christian is to have citizenship in to, to use the words of one hymn writer, in Emmanuel's land, and to have belonging in his family. Now this terminology might be challenging for us to get our hands around, 
Because citizenship identity and familial identity are the two forms of identity that I would argue our culture has worked pretty hard to dissolve. At least to dissolve their weight and importance. Such that if you were to pose the broad questions, two broad questions in our cultural moment, what does it mean to be a citizen of your country? And what does it mean to be a member of your family? You're going to get all sorts of answers. Some of them, perhaps many of them, kind of empty and worthless. But Paul uses these two concepts to communicate to new believers what God is doing. He's building a nation, which gives you a sense of magnitude, right? I mean, nations are big. And he's building a house, which gives a sense of intimacy, smallness, and nearness. I don't wonder if we, if it was that we were a people who, say, had a higher reverence for citizenship and for the family, it would not result in a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Because Paul, what he's saying here that should really astonish us is that a sense of belonging in the citizenship and family senses are baked into the Christian life. Belonging and believing are meant to go together. Belonging and believing are meant to go together. God has, a, God has a house and His people are a part of it together. We tend to mostly think of Christianity in terms of I am now a different sort of me. right? You know, so, so I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And yes and amen, that is true of all of you who are in Christ. Once you were in darkness, now you walk in His light. Once you were far off, now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are a different sort of you. But the Christian faith, the household of God, is also that I am now part of a different sort of we. I am now part of a different kind of us. And I'll say more about this later, but just for now, I think we should acknowledge that when it comes to spirituality in our historical moment, um, individualism is our standard operating kind of uh, a background operating system. It's the air we breathe. What I mean is that culturally speaking, we are, as it were, catechized to believe that matters of faith, religion, spirituality are mainly private individualistic matters. The easiest way to spot this is if you're talking about the Scriptures, about the Word of God, about what God has said, and someone feels it is their prophetic responsibility to respond to a biblical claim with, that's just your interpretation. Right? Now notice within that declaration, which is posing as a simple harmless observation, that uh, is the belief that you can reduce claims to just mere matters of interpretation. I'm not saying interpretation is not involved in such claims. I'm saying that the assumption is that reducing them just to matters of, of personal interpretation is the, uh, the hidden assertion. This is part of, this is part of the, the, and by this I mean the idea that we are not just a, a me isolated on an island, or even just me and Jesus isolated on an island, but why we are a we, a household of faith. This is part of why we worship together. Right? Here on, on Sunday morning. At the start of the service, at the start of the service, we do not put out here in front a liturgy buffet. Right? You know, so, so uh, I'll be preaching from the ESV. Which version would all of you like, though? <laughs> and then I'll, I'll read each of those out loud as we go. 
When we confess sin, we don't say, would you like to say that you're a wretch or would you like to say you've been misunderstood? (laughs) When we say the Lord's prayers together, we don't even say, would you prefer debts or would you prefer trespasses? When we recite the creed, we don't say, would you like to say what's printed or perhaps do you have your own version? That would make about as much sense as saying, when we sing Amazing Grace, would you like to join us or would you prefer to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb and the rest of us will try to drown you out? We worship together. We confess our sins together. We sing together. We recite the creed together. Because our gathered service of worship, as I never tire of saying, is not cubicle worship. We're not in our own little cubicles, having our own private devotional time, and oh, we just happen to be in public. (laughs) I'm having my own devotion. Oh, it's uh, fancy seeing you here while I'm doing my own sort of private thing. I, I, I I didn't see you there. We are rather together, each of us, offering up a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Individually, yes. With conviction, absolutely. But we're doing it together. As a people, as a body, offering up to the Lord, each of us individually, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, an offering of praise. Because God knows His children individually. Yes, absolutely He does. And He also calls them into what He calls His nation, His family, His house. Indeed, God has a house. And the second point in the sermon is that this house has a foundation. Look at verse 20. Speaking of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. There is a shift in Paul's metaphor here. He moves from uh, household, family, uh, nation, to structure, architecture, building. And any contractor or architect can tell you You cannot emphasize too much the importance of a building's foundation. Every strong building or house has a strong foundation underneath it. The first step of any building project is to dig a hole for that foundation. And once the foundation is laid, then you set the cornerstones, okay? If you've ever done a puzzle, right? You spread all the pieces out on a table, and then the first thing you do is you find those corner pieces, right? To kind of frame up your image, And then you find the borders to find the the boundaries of the whole project. So it is with building. Paul says that this household of faith works this way. The family of God is like a building and its foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That's language, of course, from Isaiah uh, in two different places. And then it shows up in Acts. Uh, and the Psalms, by the way, speaking of the Lord laying the foundation stone, the cornerstone, excuse me. So what does it mean, let's think for a moment, for the apostles and prophets to be the foundation of this building that God is building? Well, first, what do apostles and prophets have in common? The answer is that they talk, or more precisely, they write. They are God's heralds. In the Old Testament, God set apart prophets as the ones who were charged to speak His words to His people. In the New Testament, apostles were given that same task along with travel responsibilities. 
Apostles were sent out ones. You could also say, um, you know, uh, uh, Jonah was an apostle, uh, a prophet who was also an uh, apostle. He got sent out. So they were not only heralds, apostles, uh, by the way, they were sent out, deployed to both, yes, receive God's words and then speak them and write them down. And while the Holy Spirit is most certainly without question still at work in marvelous and miraculous ways among God's people today, convicting of sin, illuminating His words, showing us what is righteousness and what is judgment, indwelling God's people, the work of the apostles and prophets, as stated here, is a finished work. That is, the foundation has been laid and we don't have to keep relaying it. We call that foundation the Bible. The words of the apostles and prophets, right? We are a people of words. God spoke through chosen men inspired by the Holy Spirit. One of the things I love, by the way, Gary, I mean, appropriately having us pray for, um, for, for Muslims in the Middle East and in, in, in all places. One of the things I kind of love about the early history of Islam is that Muhammad, looking for a way to identify the Christians in Arabia, simply started calling them the people of the book. Right? So we are. This is what the Reformation was all about, right? A return to God's words. What has God said? That's our foundation for everything because as it turns out, it's God's foundation for what He's doing and building. We also read that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Again, think of that puzzle on the table. The corner pieces first and then the edges and so on. The cornerstone is the first stone that is put down. All the other stones go on top of it. Obvious, it has to be big and it has to be strong. The stone is Christ Himself. Now this is important. What I want you to see is that the apostles and prophets, the words of God to His people, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ are, if, if you like, engaged in the same building project, in the same mission, working together. Why, why do I say that? Because today there are many people who try to put Jesus in opposition to God's own words. Sometimes this is called red-letterism. The idea that if it's not in the red letters, then it's not binding or important. Such that if you quote from the Psalms or from Isaiah or from the law, someone might blurt out, but that's not Jesus. Now the first answer to that is, yes, it absolutely is. Okay? The Father has always been speaking His words through the Son and by the Spirit. So every word of God in Scripture is, in that sense, a word of Jesus. I don't think it's wrong to have a red-letter Bible. I do think an unhelpful consequence and unintended consequence of red-letter Bibles is we've gotten the idea in our head that somehow the red letters are the real deal words of God and the rest of the New Testament is, you know, almost that good and the Old Testament is God's word emeritus. Like at, at one point it was the word of God, now we've passed into a better day. No. No. Every word of God remains the word of God. Now, how we understand it and obey it might look different in the new covenant. The, uh, the, the, the system of sacrifices is the most obvious example of that. But it's all God's. It's all for His adopted children. It's all for us. These are our stories about our fathers. These are our songs. These are our ways forever. So we are always a people returning to the Word 
of the apostles and prophets, which is a general way of saying all, the, all of what the Bible has to say. Right? The, the, you, know, you, you, can, you can put under that heading the, the apostles and prophets, which also includes the psalmists and uh, the, the historians and kings and chronicles and so on. The Word of God writers. We're going to their words. Unashamedly, unapologetically, right? To the Word, to the Word we go. To these words we bring our questions, our curiosities, our uncertainties, but most importantly, our yes and amen of faith, whatever God says. So how can I know God? He has told us in His Word. How are we to worship God? He has told us in His Word. How am I to pray? He has told us in His Word. What, what can we sing? He's told us in His Word. How should I raise my children? He's told us in His Word. How does marriage work? How, does I relate, how do I relate to my spouse? He has told us in His Word. What does God expect of me in my, in my work, in my vocations, in my friendships with unbelievers? He has told us in His Word. Okay, but I feel like my question's a bit more specific. Like, how do I know who I'm supposed to marry? Ah, You are right. The Bible does not give you a specific answer to that specific question, such as Mary Tom or Mary Sally. If only the Lord had given you a household and a family to navigate such questions with the wisdom of His Word. Oh, but He has. God has a house. That house has a foundation. And the third point, this house grows together. Grows together. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure, the whole house, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Being joined together and being built together. The building project, in other words, is not finished. There's, the, the, the roof still has to be put on this place. The foundation is laid and will not be altered. The cornerstone is set and all-sufficient and cannot be moved. But the house is still growing. The house is growing into a temple. So now we arrive at our third picture, don't we? We started with nation and then household and now temple. Temples are where gods live. I'm not saying there are any more gods other than the one true and living God. I'm saying that as soon as Paul invokes the word temple, he's using a word that would have been familiar to both Jew and Gentile. I know what that means. A temple is where my God lives. Indeed, Paul says that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so God is building us Uh, uh, excuse me, joining us together and building us together. Joining us together in fellowship, building us together in sanctification. Do you realize what's being said here? If you take seriously what Paul is saying, if you see rightly the picture he's trying to paint of of this growing building, right? this building that is alive and growing, what he is saying is that God builds His people together. A relationship with God is individual. Yes, it is and it must be. But it is not purely individualistic. 
To be in relationship with God assumes meaningful relationships with His people because we grow together. It is hard, that is hard for us to imagine in our age, again, of expressive individualism. We like to imagine a lot of times spirituality, again, as a matter of uh, individualistic convictions. So to be a Christian means I made a decision, I chose to believe, I read my Bible, I get baptized, I sing these kinds of Christian songs, I say my prayers, that's what it means to be a Christian. And as soon as someone asks, well, are you part of a church? Do you worship what other believers say? Are you, are you in, we might say, to, to throw this term in, covenantal connection with other believers? The modern evangelical tendency is to gasp and say, how dare you? Don't you know that uh, you don't go to church? You, you are, oh, oh, I know all of you knew it. You've all been catechized with that one. <laughs> it is, in my humble opinion, one of the most unhelpful slogans ever invented by modern evangelical spirituality. It is true that God builds with spiritual stones. People. Not physical stones like the brick and mortar that hold this building together. But it is ironic, if not a bit depressing, that we have used the language of God building a spiritual nation and family and temple in order to excuse ourselves from meaningful connection to that nation and family and temple. Do you follow me? I'm saying that we use the language of the church is not the building so that we don't ever have to show up at the building. Well, he's building something then. Are you a part of that or no? The longer you think about that, the more you realize it's just dumb. I'm not saying you can't be saved without having your name on a church roll. No, I'm not saying that. And frankly, I don't know anyone who believes that. But that was, by the way, you could say part of Paul's point at the start of chapter 2, right? By grace you have been saved. We've been over that bit already. That is salvation. But one of the worst moves you can make after affirming that is to limit the entirety of Christian identity to your doctrine of salvation. So yes, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I did not say through church alone. I said by grace alone, through faith alone. But does God ordinarily work powerfully through people who are at great distance from Christian community, meaningful relationships, biblical worship, and honest accountability? No. And if you ask me, can't I just be a Christian but not go to church? My answer is not for very long. Oh, but the church is such a mess. The church has really hurt me. Of course it has. Seriously, I I don't doubt that at all. I, I, I budget for that when we talk about these things. I just want God to change my life, but I don't want to be involved at all with a church. I, I'm going to say, you, you, you've got the wrong God here. You will, you will need to find a different one because this, this thing that He is building is a household and family of faith. And if you think the church is full of hypocrites, the least you can do is not be a hypocrite yourself by claiming to be part of the family, but when the family gets together, you're alone in the basement muttering to yourself about how you don't need anybody else. But, but Pastor Brian, what about wherever two or three are gathered? Yes. That's a text about resolving conflicts and putting divisions to rest. 
Please don't make it a text about how we can justify dividing ourselves and hiding from our conflicts. Okay? It is true that wherever two or three are gathered, the Lord is present there, doing His work of reconciling love in their midst. So God has a house. That house has a foundation, and this house is growing together. Growing together. That's why we have fellowship activities, right? It's why we have stuff like church picnics. It's why we hang around after church. I love, I love how long, I, I'm not sure all of our deacons love it as much as I do, but how long some of you just linger on and we have to leave the lights on and maybe come back and turn them off later because you guys just won't leave. It's good. It's why we have the feast days like we did last week. It's why we have makers workshops and small group Bible studies. It's why we have more than one elder. You know? It's why we have baby showers. It's why we have Wednesday night suppers. It's why we have times where we get together, maybe just to learn how to sing a bit better. Sing together. It's not, it's not programs for program's sake. Lord, save us from that. It is the practical outworking of a conviction that apart from meaningful fellowship in the body, I didn't say, I mean, perfect fellowship in the body. Different of you among us have all all manner of of commitments and perhaps living at at great distances or family things that might come up or something like that. Of of course, your mileage is going to vary on those things. But... When we get together, for whatever reason, it's an outworking of our conviction that we're called to meaningful fellowship. In the, so what, I've used that, that word a few times, meaningful fellowship, meaningful fellowship. What do I mean by that? I mean knowing people and being known. Okay, Knowing people and being known. So you might know a lot of people in this church. Are you known by anybody? Okay. So that, that's what I mean by meaningful fellowship. Because we're called into this house of God to know and to be known because this house grows together. That's the way we grow. So perhaps it is we need to confess, you know, maybe that, maybe that we're good at, at showing up on Sunday, but not good at growing together. Maybe some of us have had our name on a roll, but we're not growing together. Can, uh, or, or, or here's one, here's one for me that, that is that is a good fruit-bearing question. You confess your sins in private. That's a good practice. Have you ever confessed them, not in private, <laughs> to your spouse, to your friends, to your pastor, Or, or uh, we had a time during the service this morning of giving of tithes and offerings, a good thing to do. But how about giving yourself, your presence, your wisdom, your open ears? You pray for others, good. Now pray with others as well. Our Lord Jesus took on flesh to save the world. If you like, he took, <laughs> he took on shoulders so that He could rub shoulders with other people. He became man so that He could minister to other men and women. He took on a, a, a mouth and lips so that He could speak real forgiveness into real ears. He took on real hands so that He could wash real feet. And 
so that nails could go through them. And so, my encouragement to you this morning is let us not assume that we can follow Jesus apart from glad, rejoicing participation in the household of faith that He is building. In the name of Jesus, Amen. And so, Father, we thank You for Your people, for calling and constituting a people, indeed from before, the, before there were worlds. And Father, I preach as one who struggles with, with knowing and being known, uh, with, with being vulnerable with others, with being open and honest. Uh, and so I pray for help in this for myself as I pray for it in the lives of my brothers and my sisters here. That you would give it to us to be a, a people bound together, not just for the sake of, of, of being bound together in a sort of earthly, temporal club sense, but that you would grant that this, all, all the glory that you've invested into this, into this idea of a spiritual household being built together and joined together, that we would have a sense of the joy and the weight and the glory of all of it. All to the glory of the one who called us in and has adopted us into that family. Indeed, in Jesus' name, amen.